This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome on this rainy Saturday morning. Um, And uh, today's going to be a special show. Uh, We've been waiting to do this for a while and uh, finally gotten her schedule squared away. In the studio, we're going to be joined by Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. Dr. Wilson is the Chief of Breast Surgery at the Hoffman Breast Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. So we're going to chat with her about some of the new information about breast cancer. I think a lot of people have read about the study that was recently done saying that many women don't require chemotherapy uh, in the sense that it did not make a a difference in their longevity. So um, we're going to talk to her a little bit about that. Uh, By way of follow-up from last week, I had to get to this. Uh, Last week, uh, one of our guests was uh, Mr. Jonah Francis uh, from Pansy Home Care. And the reason I want to repeat this is because several people have called and contacted me asking for the phone number again uh, for Mr. Francis. Um, Several people called. He provides home care services uh, for people uh, in general, people who are ill, people who got out of the hospital. Um, His phone number is 860-212-6433. For Pansy Home Care Services, 860-212-6433. Uh, and I wanted to get back to people. Also, after the show last week, we had a call, and I like to take the calls. Even if I can't take it on the air, um, I was able to talk to a gentleman last week. And, you know, we talked a lot about suicide last week, famous people uh, committing suicide, and he asked me about uh, addressing the issue of post-traumatic stress disorder, and especially in Vietnam veterans and suicide rates. And that's I told him that's like a whole show, and I think that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start working on uh, finding an expert and putting that together to talk a little bit about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in general and its implications in suicide. So I wanted to thank uh, that caller. Uh, This week uh, I received the sad information that a friend of mine died, Mr. Billy Connors. Mr. Billy Connors was the uh, baseball coach. and he was the pitching coach for the New York Yankees at several segments. Uh, he led an illustrious career, to say the least. But what I found interesting is that in all the pieces written in all the newspapers about him, um, they describe him as a baseball man. Very interesting. Uh, typically someone who really dedicated his life to his occupation and his sport. Uh, was never married, never had a family, um, just uh, his mom and uh aunts and uncles, but everything in his life centered around baseball. And he was a brilliant baseball uh, pitching coach. Uh, What he did was he was known for, I guess they called him the pitching whisperer because he would take people, for example, Mariano Rivera. He's the guy who taught him how to use that cut fastball that got him to be the best reliever in history. Um, So many, Rick Sudcliffe, all these people who kind of, kind of fell out of grace, he could revive their career. So um, just a mention of my friend, Mr. Billy Connors. This day in medicine, 
Well, I have to tell you, there's an exception this week because I really couldn't find anything that was that pertinent. So I decided to go back and forth. So instead of June 23rd, I went to June 22nd, 1874, is when Dr. Andrew Taylor Still uh, announced the founding of osteopathy, osteopathic medicine. He was a self-taught medical practitioner, and um, he really blended two ways of approaching medicine, uh, physical medicine with chiropractic adjustment and things such as that, as well as standard allopathic medical practices. So a lot of times you'll see physicians now uh, have the initials DO after their name instead of MD, and those physicians are osteopathic physicians. So they do all the same things that MDs do. Uh, it's much more popular, I would say, in the Midwest uh, where a lot of the schools were centered at that time. And then tomorrow, June 24th, is the Feast of St. John the Baptist. Now, the importance of that is, traditionally, it was the day to go out and pick therapeutic herbs. So uh, interesting that at that time of season, it was the Feast of St. John the Baptist, and people would pick therapeutic herbs, basically drugs. People always say, well, I like to take all natural things. Okay, medications are all natural. Much of it is derived from plants and fungus and other things um, that we find in nature. So again, the Feast of St. John the Baptist tomorrow. You know, we've been hearing so much about uh, children locked in cages, children detained at the border, separated from their families. And the thing that comes to mind for me is something we talked about uh, with Dr. Setu Vora on this show, which was the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. Now, this is the survey. It's a 10-point survey that's administered to children to find out about their childhood experiences. And it addresses things like the death of a parent, uh, family member going to prison, uh, chronic disease in the family. And these things add up on a score. And what we've found is, and this is, again, science. This is not people guessing. It is that we've found that the higher the score, the more likely those people are to develop things like diabetes, asthma, hypertension, coronary artery disease, obesity. So these psychological stresses, and I'm not going to get into the politics of it. I just let, I'll leave that to Todd Feinberg and, and, and those folks. But basically... Uh, the issue here is the more stress we put on children, we're going to pay for it in the long run. That's absolutely it because we're going to be supporting those medical that medical care. So we have to be very careful around children and the psychological stress we put on them. I want to thank my colleagues at the University of Connecticut, um, especially in my laboratory there, the EMG laboratory, nerve conduction, where we do nerve conduction studies in EMG. Uh, we have now become uh, nationally certified uh, with exemplary status, and the staff there did a phenomenal job. Getting these accreditations just takes a lot of effort uh, in terms of paperwork, in terms of uh, technical things put together to make sure you comply with a national standard. So uh, our lab uh, at the University of Connecticut is now uh, certified with the, with the highest status. One thing you're going to hear a lot about from physicians is locum tenens. It's an interesting term, and it's one that's become more and more popular. More and more physicians are opting to do have a different approach to their practice, um, it used to be only older physicians did this. And basically, you hire yourself out 
to go out and work for another doctor. So another doctor may be ill, um, they're on vacation, and you would go to that practice and stand in for the doctor. And they have agencies that hire you and um, they have umpteen requests. But basically, and some younger physicians, this is how they're setting up practice, is they'll go to a remote area or an area they want to go to and spend a month or two uh, working in that practice, filling in, especially at a hospital where a hospital suddenly loses a doctor and has to fill a spot. Uh, they'll just go out there, fill the spot, and really become self-employed in that way and organize their time. And they talk about physicians who have you know, really had to change things in their priorities, uh, family life, uh, possibly for a young woman who may want to go in, become a locum tenens, uh, and uh, for other people who have other passions, uh, race car drivers, people who compete at high-level sports, again, are physicians who may go out and, and do locum tenens work. So you're going to hear more and more about that over time. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest here in the studio, Dr. Nia Mae Wilson, and we're going to be talking about breast surgery and breast cancer and how they do this at the Breast Cancer Program at the Hoffman Breast Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. I'm going to give you the phone numbers now. So 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also contact me by email at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. We chose Little Red Corvette because today is the Barrett-Jackson Auto Show at Mohegan Sun. And if you're in the area, get over there. It's going on till Sunday. And it's not just an auto auction, which is a big part of it, but there are all these cars. It's like a car show, and they let you ride in some of the cars. Um, everyone I've spoken to who has gone there said it's been phenomenal. It's the largest auto show on the East Coast uh, from what I'm told. So it's, it's a huge, huge thing. This week, I will be at uh, Mohegan Sun. Uh, the Connecticut Sun have a game on Wednesday, and uh, they'll be uh, playing, I think it's the Atlanta Dream, we're playing on Wednesday. And then next Saturday night uh, will be Star Boxing. So we get back into the ring. Star Boxing will be there for a huge show uh, at the Mohegan Sun Arena. So a lot going on at Mohegan Sun. Get on over there, and um, I'm usually at courtside or ringside. Come on down and say hello. I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Wilson is a surgeon and a specialist in uh, breast cancer surgery, and that's what she has done. Um, she is part of the Hoffman Breast Center at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. She has been a guest on our show uh, years ago. It's been way too long. Nia May, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let's talk a little bit about it. It's it's great to have you back. And, and I want to also tell people that uh, I've referred patients to Dr. Wilson, and every one of them has been very satisfied with the care. Not only you, but your team at St. Francis does a phenomenal job of spending time with patients, getting to know the patient, and that's really what this is about. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we have a, a great program at St. Francis. Yeah. Uh, we have a beautiful breast center. Um, I don't know if you've actually been there, but we got to have you up at some point. 
Um, we have a full facility with uh, the breast surgeons. We have our wonderful nurses, nurse navigators. We have a variety of services that we provide. So it's a, it's a beautiful center. Let's talk a little bit about this. I, I want to talk about your education. I mean, how did you get into breast cancer surgery? Uh, you went to medical school at Columbia Presbyterian, right? Columbia, New York. I don't know, I keep changing the name at a darn place, right? <laughs> yes, I guess if you donate a lot of money, uh, you get to have your name on the building. So um, it's <laughs> Columbia you know, University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Right. Um, and I graduated from there for medical school and from there went to the University of Pennsylvania for general surgery. So that was a seven-year program, two years of which was research. And during those two years, I, have a, I obtained a master's degree in health policy research and then completed a one-year fellowship in breast surgical oncology. So uh, then you came right to St. Francis. Is that when you came to St. Francis? Yeah, that was uh, right afterwards. Um, I was recruited to the position of uh, co-director of the Breast Center at that time with my partner, Kim Caprio. And over the past three years or so, we've been um, uh, have, we've had a great run and um, – Things changed administratively a little bit, and so I became the uh, chief of breast surgery at the program. Why did you choose breast surgery? Breast surgery is a very, very special field. Um, you know, going through residency, you go through all the different fields within surgery, thoracic, vascular, colorectal, um, all the other ones. And you have to make a decision about what you want to do with your life and which patients you want to take care of and what disease process interests you the most. And over the course of seven years, um, it became pretty clear to me that I wanted to be involved in women's health and I wanted to have a long-term uh, relationship with my patients. Um, with breast cancer and breast surgery, you follow your patients for years after their diagnosis. You don't just treat them and then they go off to the next provider and you never see them again. You have these really long-term um, relationships. So that really drew, uh, drew the, the field to me. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of the evolution of breast cancer and breast cancer care uh, in terms of how our treatments have evolved and, and some of the statistics, especially here in Connecticut. Yes. Uh, statistically, Connecticut does have a very high percentage of uh, breast cancers uh, compared to the rest of the country. So the average for the country is about a 12.4% risk of breast cancer. And here in Connecticut, it's about 13.7, So not drastically higher, but certainly higher than the national average. Um, <clears throat> and there's, there's a lot of breast cancer around. About 230,000 new cases will be diagnosed uh, each year. Um, about 60,000 new cases of pre-invasive cancer known as DCIS each year. It's very treatable, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's very common. It's all over the place. When you see those uh, increased numbers here in Connecticut, why is that? Is it because there is more um, or are we just finding it or doing a better job of detecting it? There's no um, perfect answer to that, but people do believe that, in general, we probably do a little more screening. So we're picking up more cases of pre-invasive cancer. And um, our, you know, Connecticut in general does do a very good job of pushing the screening mammograms and, and a lot of awareness events and things like that. So I think we just are detecting it a little bit earlier. So one of the criticisms has been kind of the false positives in terms of breast cancer. And um, the... Um, I'm trying to think of the the recommending the uh, 
the group in Washington that recommends treatment and, and screening mm-hmm. have kind of backed off on the screening. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that and that whole controversy there? Yeah, that's it's very controversial. So the screening guidelines for mammograms, there are about six different groups that provide recommendations, and they're all different. Um, the group you're talking about is the USPSTF, the United Correct. Services Preventative Task Force. So their recommendations are that between the ages of 40 and 49, you have a discussion with your doctor about the benefits of screening. And then you should start at 50 and go every other year. Then there's the national, um, the NCCN, um, the uh, American Society of uh, American Society of Cancer. Um, I'm sorry, American Cancer Society. There's the uh, ACOG. There's a, a variety of other groups, right. and they all have different recommendations. Um, some of those other ones that I just listed are, start at 40 and go annually. So women are sort of left, uh, you know, not knowing what to do. And we always tell people you need to talk to your doctor to see what the risks and benefits are of starting earlier versus later. And by the way, these are for women who are at average risk. If you have a mutation or strong family history, then you're kind of excluded from that. But if you have average risk, then should you start at 40? Should you start at 45? What about 50? I think you need to have a discussion with your provider to see what's going to make the most sense. Um, but in general, um, the recommendations to start at 40 are very reasonable because the only the, the major drawback for starting early, which is, you know, for some of these guidelines would be 40, then the, the risk is that, just as you said, you're going to have more false positives. So over 10 years of screening, 60% of women are going to get called back for some sort of additional pictures being taken. And of that 60%, 15 of them, 15% are going to be recommended to have a biopsy. 80% of those biopsies will be benign. So there's a huge amount of testing that occurs and anxiety and additional radiation and so forth and you know cost to the system. And the vast majority of those biopsies are going to be benign. That, those, those percentages happen more frequently in that younger population, the 40 to 49 so the USPSTF, which is very cost, you know, um, I was going to say that. I'm glad you took the words out of my mouth there. Go ahead. Yeah, they're, they're <clears throat> a little more focused on that. Um, if you start at 50, their argument is that you basically are maintaining about 80% of the benefit. And it's a much, you know, much less cost to the system overall by excluding the women who are 40 to 49 so your recommendation is what? What are the Dr. Neame Wilson recommendations? My recommendation, first of all, talk to your doctor. I cannot give official medical advice, right. as no. we all know. No, but that's it. it I think but you're hitting the you nail on to. the head. Medicine is personalized. Correct. We keep hearing this word, personalized medicine. It starts with the person. Not everybody fits into all these categories and these standards. It's nice to have standards, mm-hmm. but it's that discussion. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's yeah. a discussion with your physician that really determines what kind of testing you need, what you don't need going forward. It's about your family history. It's about the genetics. Uh, there are so many factors playing into really all of your health care and not just uh, when we talk about breast cancer. Um, we're going to get ready for a short break, but I want to make sure I give the phone number, uh, first of all, for the studio. Uh, if you have questions in our second half of the show, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. I also want to give the phone number for Dr. Wilson um, at the Hoffman uh, Breast Cancer Program, 860 860- 
714-614-6318. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to talk a little bit more with Dr. Wilson about some of the new changes, uh, how some women don't need chemotherapy, and how this is affecting treatment overall. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're talking about breast cancer, breast cancer surgery, with my guest, Dr. Niamh Wilson, from the Hoffman Breast Center at St. Francis Hospital of Medical Center. Uh, Niamh, just uh, before the break, we talked a little bit about some of the changes in recommendations for breast cancer, and you mentioned 230,000 cases. Is that in the United States? Yes. What... Do we have any idea of what the number is internationally? Because I, I have to say, like when I work in Haiti, if we find a woman with breast cancer, that's it's pretty much a death sentence. Um, do we have any idea what the numbers are internationally of breast cancer? I think they're relatively the same. Um, the prevalence is, is fairly standard. Um, obviously, the treatments are very different depending on where you are. If you're in a third world country, um, a lot of patients will present with, you know, at the time of basically distant disease with stage four metastasis. Um, here in the United States, uh, somewhere around five to 8% of women will present and they're already going to be stage four. But that's that's very different. Depending on where you are, the treatments um, offered can be very different. The new study uh, looked at 10,000 women and suggested that chemotherapy in some instances may not offer that much benefit. Can you talk a little bit about the study and what it really is telling us? Sure. So it's a very important study because it really focuses in on the fact that the treatment for breast cancer these days is becoming very individualized, which is what we want. Um, If you had perfect treatment, for example, for all kinds of breast cancer, my job as a breast surgeon would go away, which I would be happy if that happened. You know, if we had perfect treatment, it would be great. Um, But we don't have that yet. And so we're trying, you know, kind of by fits and starts to get there. So the study that came out was a study that looked at um, a, a certain test called the Oncotype, which is a very important test. And so just by way of background, Basically, the majority of women who come in with a breast cancer will have um, the the most common type of breast cancer that we see is invasive ductal carcinoma. And what that means is that the cancer cells have broken out of the milk duct. They've invaded into the local tissue. It doesn't mean that the cancer cells have invaded their body, just into the local tissue. And so that word can be a little scary, but I always explain that when I see my patients. And so the cancers that are um, small and estrogen-sensitive, meaning they're driven by estrogen, and um, a protein on the cancer cells called HER2 nu typically is negative. Uh, And then the lymph nodes usually have to be clear as well. That's the majority of cancer patients that we see. Small cancers, estrogen-sensitive, HER2 negative, lymph node negative. So that's kind of a mouthful. Previously, a lot of those women would have been recommended to have chemotherapy just based on clinical criteria, the size of the cancer, the patient's age, other risk factors that the medical oncologist was taking into account. But nowadays, what we have to offer is an actual genetic analysis of the cancer itself to see whether or not it will be sensitive to chemo. So this study is very important because we've been using this specific test, the Oncotype, for several years now. And we know that this um, test 
basically what it is, it's a 21 gene assay of the cancer itself. So once the patient has surgery, we take a little specimen from the cancer, we send it out to a lab, and it analyzes the 21 genes within the cancer. And it spits out this number ranging from 0 to 100. The low numbers mean that the cancer cells basically are not dividing very rapidly and won't respond to chemo. So those patients who have a low number don't need chemo. They're not going to get any benefit from chemo. Patients who have a high score, that what that is translating into is that the cancer cells are rapidly dividing and would respond to chemo. And so those patients who have a high score get chemo. Then there's this huge number of women in the middle who get this intermediate score and the medical oncologists were sort of, you know, using go, going back to their original criteria of who is going to need chemotherapy, uh, because no one really knew what to do with these women. So this new study called the Taylor RX trial um, was started in 2006 and just basically wrapped up. And the new uh, data came out a couple weeks ago, which showed that about 70 percent of those women in that intermediate score, that range, are not going to need chemotherapy. So it's wonderful because. We had been giving chemotherapy to probably more than that, obviously, uh, because we didn't know if it was going to benefit them. And so now we can safely say that a solid 70% will not need chemotherapy with scores in that range. Which brings me to the next question, which is what does that mean in terms of not needed? Does that mean they're going to live without chemotherapy? I mean, let's, let's talk life and death here. Sure. We, we, there's some interesting statistics regarding breast cancer in general. Because you don't hear of a lot of death from breast cancer anymore. We hear of successful treatment. So in that 70%, does that mean their five-year survival is not going to change? What does it mean in the long run to them? Yeah, in general, it, what it's it's talking the the study was looking at uh, survival rates, and so the survival rates um, and recurrence rates; those are the outcomes that the study was was evaluating, are not statistically different with and without chemo for those groups of women. Now, the caveat to that is that because they're estrogen sensitive cancers, those women do have to take that pill that blocks the estrogen. The, the numbers don't are, are not really valid without women taking that pill. So that's those numbers are assuming that the women are going to be uh, good about you know taking the the medication that's required to treat the the hormone sensitive part of the cancer, which they would have had to take anyhow. Correct. Yes, but your to your point, the risk of dying from breast cancer is fairly low. So just to give you some numbers here, and Please. we won't go too crazy here, but no, but it's important. It's important. So the we already said that the. Um, the prevalence, or I'm sorry, the incidence of breast cancer is about 12.5%, somewhere in that range. The risk of dying from breast cancer on an annual basis is about 2.7%. Then when you add in, um, if let's say we were going to get rid of all screening mammograms, because we were talking about that before as well, the risk of dying from breast cancer is about 3.2%. So that's a difference of 0.5% roughly, which means that uh, you need about 200 women screened to prevent one cancer death. So that's where, you know, mammograms, people say mammograms save lives. It does. Mammograms do save lives. Uh, but the risk of, of dying from breast cancer is, um, it's not insignificant. It's still the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. But the risk of dying from breast cancer is is low. It's two. It's about 2.7%. 
striking statistics. We're going to take a short break, and then I want to get back uh, with Dr. Wilson and really talk about the types of surgery, um, what has led to this really dramatic decline in uh, breast cancer deaths in the United States. Uh, we're chatting with Dr. Niamh Wilson about breast cancer and breast cancer surgery. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're in the final segment of our program with Dr. Niamh Wilson talking about breast cancer. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about breast cancer actual surgery. We hear all these different terms, uh, lumpectomy, uh, radical mastectomy. I'm old, so I remember um, as a student uh, being in the OR with these horrendous surgeries um, that were performed fairly routinely. Uh, and I don't hear those words very often now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. In general, the evolution of breast cancer surgery has become more and more limited and less invasive over time. So we used to do these horrible procedures, radical mastectomy, where you remove the breast tissue, you remove all the lymph nodes and the pectoralis muscle too, the, the muscle right. over the chest. And it's very disfiguring, very dis, uh, deforming, and a lot of um, issues in terms of healing afterwards. So we don't do that anymore because there have been studies evaluating the um, benefits and risks you know, for, for that type of surgery compared to a more limited surgery. And so these things have been evaluated over time and have uh, the studies basically have shown that there's no benefit to these bigger surgeries. So over time, in general, that's the direction we're heading. I would say that we also do a significantly smaller amount of axillary surgery. That's the lymph node surgery. We don't remove nearly as many lymph nodes as we used to because the studies have shown that you don't need to do that and you get the same rates of, um, of, of cure. So <clears throat> the surgeries themselves, um, one thing I just want to make sure that everyone's aware of is that if somebody has breast cancer and they choose to have a lumpectomy or they choose to have a mastectomy, a lot of times I'll get a question saying, well, if I have a mastectomy, then I don't need chemotherapy, right? If I do a bigger surgery, I won't need chemo. And that's not the case. So the decision for chemotherapy is purely its own thing. Surgery is surgery. Chemotherapy is chemotherapy. They're really separated. The things that go together are often radiation and surgery. If you have a smaller surgery, a lumpectomy, where we just remove the lump itself and we sample lymph nodes if it's invasive cancer, that's a local treatment to the breast, and that typically is followed with radiation to the breast. That's another local treatment to reduce the possibility of that cancer coming back in that breast tissue. If you have a mastectomy, the breast tissue is gone, and so most of the time, although not always, most of the time, you can skip the radiation. So lump surgery and uh, radiation can go together if you want to think about it that way. Chemotherapy is its own thing. One of the things we hear about now is bilateral surgery. Uh, women who want to reduce the risk of having recurrence in the opposite breast. Can you talk a little bit about that? The likelihood of a woman getting breast cancer on the other side is very low. And the consensus statement from the American Society of Breast Surgeons is that we do not recommend routine removal of the normal breast on the other side. So that's a discussion that has to be had with your provider a lot of women still opt for a double or bilateral mastectomy because they want to reduce their risk as much as humanly possible. But I always tell my patients that there is no oncologic benefit 
to removing a healthy breast. We would still have to screen that side and mammograms and ultrasounds and so forth going going you know forward into into the future. But um, it, there's no oncologic benefit to it, and so it's a really personal decision. The other thing we hear about more and more of is breast reconstruction, even at the time of mastectomy. Is that fairly common now? Most women do choose reconstruction, especially our younger patients. Uh, we typically offer it to um, almost everybody. There are certain situations where we can't offer it right away. And so those patients may be candidates for what's called delayed reconstruction. But generally, we do try to do reconstruction at the same time as the mastectomy. So it's during the same operation. And there are two overall categories that um, are options for reconstruction. One is called implant-based reconstruction, and the other is autologous or tissue-based reconstruction. So the implants um, are much more common, and um, we use those very frequently. The first procedure is the mastectomy, and actually a temporary implant gets put in at first called a tissue expander. And then over time, that tissue expander gets enlarged with saline and then eventually is swapped out for a permanent implant. The alternative to that for certain women, and they have to be appropriate candidates for this, where the plastic surgeon can use their own abdominal fat or sometimes their um, fat kind of on the side of their chest wall near their armpit to um, build a new breast at the same time as the initial surgery as well. So that's a much more complicated procedure and requires a surgeon that has a plastic surgeon that has expertise in microvascular techniques. It's it's amazing, but I guess in the last five minutes, I'd like to talk to you. Actually, I have four minutes left. What about the future? This is an exciting field, actually, in, in surgery in general. But uh, really, the whole study of breast cancer and how much how much success we've had with reducing it. Um, what's next? What are we going to start? Where is the next? Where is the future? Where is the next big breakthrough going to come? in the treatment of breast cancer? Uh, I think it's going to come from a lot of different areas. So one major, I think, advance kind of coming down the road are going to be these immunological uh, therapies where we're really targeting other features of the cancer that we previously have not been. So we focus a lot on estrogen positivity, HER2 positivity. These are going to be more focused on an individual immunological basis of the cancer the other issue that's going to be very interesting is the role of surgery and how that's going to change. So, for example, there are some <clears throat> benign lumps that can be treated with freezing techniques. And we may see that coming down the line for small cancers. Again, women have to be appropriate candidates for this sort of thing. Um, but I think what you're going to see going forward is smaller, less invasive procedures some women may not need surgery altogether for certain types of cancers. There's some studies looking at DCIS, which is that pre-invasive cancer we talked about. For some older women um, who have a low-grade DCIS, there are three studies right now looking at whether or not you need to remove that surgically at all, or if you can just follow those women with active surveillance getting mammograms every year to see if anything changes. Because there are some breast cancers, believe it or not, which will never become clinically relevant in someone's lifetime. So you don't have to treat every single case because there's certainly an issue of overdiagnosis and overtreatment in breast cancer. And I don't, th I don't think those can be ignored. 
So I think what you're saying is the future is actually less treatment rather than more treatment. In some cases, it may be less treatment. And in other cases, I think it's just going to be much more targeted treatment. And that's really the direction that medicine is going in general. How about what's going to be new at the Hoffman Breast Center? Uh, you it, it Just kind of walk us through in the last minute or so uh, what happens there and, and what you see as being the future at your center. So our breast center is – it's just really a spectacular place. Um, the facility itself, as I said before, it is beautiful. Um, when you walk in, everything is meant to be calming and sort of relaxing as much as possible because we understand that when women are coming in for their mammograms or their visit with their doctor, that that's a stressful time. So everything is meant to be peaceful and quiet. Um, there's complimentary valet parking. There is a beautiful uh, front waiting room. All of the rooms, the exam rooms themselves, have TVs that are displaying this um, very nice, relaxing uh, scenery from nature. And then the services we provide at the breast center are phenomenal as well. We have on-site radiology that does our mammograms, ultrasounds, bone densities, and all of our biopsies. And for the imaging, the mammograms and ultrasounds, you get your results within 10 minutes. So there's no waiting around. There's no letter in the mail 10 days later, a week later, or even a day later telling you that either everything's okay or maybe everything's not. So you know right away what's going on. And if, God forbid, there's something happening, uh, you, you know, you need an additional test or a study, there's a provider on site right there who usually can see you that day. So we just try to streamline it as much as possible. We have our nurses who are just the most dedicated group of women I've ever had the pleasure of working with, our social worker, our medical oncologists, our genetic counselors. Uh, it's, it's just a phenomenal group of women. So it's wonderful. That's great. And I want to recommend to people, if you're dealing with breast cancer, uh, it's so much better to go to a breast center and find out what that means, because a lot of people throw the term center around. Uh, again, to get in touch with Dr. Wilson, 860-714-6318, uh, and that is the Hoffman Breast Center. Uh, Dr. Wilson, uh, Naomi, thank you so much for being here. It's been a great pleasure. I hope to be back soon. Ah, we hope to have you back soon. My thanks today to my studio producer, Mike Olko, has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of Healthy Rounds Marketing and Sales. Uh, next week, we're going to have another live show for you, and uh, we will chat about some new topic in medicine. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.